Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Hello, and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and I am a certified financial planner practitioner, and this is a show for you to help you understand the stock market better, to keep up with legislative items that might impact your finances, to look at financial planning topics, and then finally, in the last segment, Ask Peggy, you can send in a question and I'll try to help you understand something better. So let's get started with the Bulls and Bears Market and Economic Update section. And so for the week ending July 27th, 2018, the Dow was up about 1.5%, the S&P 500 was up 0.6%, but the NASDAQ was down a little over 1%, and we'll come back to that in a minute. Gold was down 0.69%, and oil again continues its climb, and it was up one and a third percent So why was the NASDAQ down last week when the Dow and the S&P 500 were both up? And the easy answer is Facebook. On Thursday, July 26th, Facebook lost $120 billion, with a B, dollars of value. It's the largest one-day drop in any kind of recent market history by a $30 billion, again with a B, margin. So what happened was earnings missed expectations, and they came out and provided some kind of weak guidance. Guidance is where a company tells you what they think is going to happen next. And they're expecting some slower user growth. They're looking at decelerating revenue, which means they're going to earn less money through advertising in the third and fourth quarter. I think some of this is a function of just the cyclical nature of how stocks like these work. You know, once you've really kind of tapped out the number of people who are going to buy ads, if anything happens to slow down their ad usage, it can be hard to get new users to keep your ad rate where it was or even to grow it. Additionally, there was the huge um, scandal with the data mining that happened here over the last year, and really analysts had been surprised that Facebook stock had held up through all of that fairly well, because it was really big scandals, and what role had Facebook played in election returns, and what sort of what sort of safeguards were going in place to make sure that untrue news stories weren't being propagated? And then what's the role of social media in that? Is it the role of social media to make sure what you're putting on is true? It's been very complicated, and the stock has been unbelievably resilient through all of it until now. And I really think this was probably all of that coming into play at the same time. So you have fewer users, you have slower growth, you have the fallout from the scandal. Additionally, because they're going to be adding quite a few security measures, Mark Zuckerberg said that he was anticipating those costs to be very high, which would throw you into a negative revenue stream even if your advertising wasn't dropping off. And in addition, Facebook isn't the only show in town, and some of the other social media platforms have become a little bit more popular with younger users. No one thinks that Facebook's in any real kind of trouble here, 
But this is why I'm not crazy about investing in single stocks. I think you're safer in an index. You know, Facebook went down 20% on Thursday, which is just staggering. It's a crazy huge loss. But the NASDAQ only closed down 1% for the week. Now, it might have been a little bit lower if you'd looked at it as of the close on Thursday, but it certainly wasn't anything like 5%. So what you want to be careful of is that you diversify. If you aren't in just simply single stocks, you're much less likely to get hit with the one-day 20% surprise. Yeah, everybody kind of thought Facebook would have a day of reckoning. Nobody really knows when the day of reckoning is ever going to be. So when you diversify out your investments, you're simply safer than when you buy single stocks, even if you think the single stocks are really cool. So the other piece of economic news was the GDP announcement on um, July 27th, which was Friday. And this was the initial read for the second quarter of 2018. And it showed that the um, GDP grew by 4.1%. Now, GDP is a combination of personal consumption, business investment, government, and net exports. Net exports are imports, where we get things from other countries, minus exports, where we send things to other countries. So those are the four components that make up GDP, what we spend personally, what we spend in business, what the government spends, and then what we export to other places. So a 4.1, now that's annualized. It doesn't mean it went up 4.1% in the second quarter. It just means that it would be on track for a year of 4.1 GDP growth. It's phenomenally good, okay? You can't take anything away from the 4.1% number. But I do think that it's important to know that there's the expectation that it will be closer to 2.9 or 3% for 2018 when we get to the end of the year. Lots of things can cause GDP to register particularly high. It's possible that one of the things that made this GDP number so unbelievably high was a concern about impending tariffs which would impact your net exports number because everybody was trying to stockpile and do as many deals as they could before any tariffs went into place. So it's possible there'll be a downward revision to GDP in third quarter. Now, of course, the administration is saying that it's a result of the tax um, the tax bill, the um, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that passed last year, as well as then improving conditions. And really, the easiest way to address that is to just let time tell us what's going on. Most analysts don't think we're going to keep the 4.1%. They don't think we're going to be higher than that. So, you know, I don't want to take anything away from a good number, but I do think that when you realize there was a lot of business that went on in second quarter, that it might make what happened in the second quarter make more sense in the long run. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. This is the legislative update, and today I want to start out talking about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, Remember that that was the bureau that was originally headed or um, 
comprised by Elizabeth Warren. She wasn't actually ever the head of it. And it was designed to help keep consumers safe after some of the bad behavior in the financial sector, especially after 2008 and following. Well, under the Trump administration, Mick Mulvaney took over as temporary head of the CFPB, and a lot of the work that they were doing changed in focus, where it became more a way of promoting business so that it would help um, consumers at the end of the day because business was better, and also just no longer enforcing any of the rules. The CFPB had been kind of gasping for air for a while. Well, it looks like maybe it's going to begin to function more in the way that it had originally been designed to function, although with quite a few changes. First of all, Mick Mulvaney was only interim director, and so Kathy Craninger is now the nominee for the permanent director. She's an associate of Mulvaney's. It's expected that she'll get it, but I'm kind of hoping that with Mulvaney focusing on other things, CFPB can return more to what it was originally designed to do, which is to keep people safe. One of the things that Mulvaney reinstated before he left was um, enforcement, enforcement of rules. However, rather than going in and suing companies, as is what happened more under the Obama administration, where it was very punitive towards financial firms that had been bad actors to the public, instead, they're looking at creating more of a collaborative approach to where they talk to the companies that have been accused of the bad behavior and try to get them to change. There's There are penalties and fines. The dollar amount is much lower than what was typically coming out of the Obama administration. And then additionally, CFPB has said that they will enforce less harshly the rules on people who self-report. Now, As much as I am a fan of financial firms acting in everybody's best interest, and I'm I'm really kind of concerned a little bit with this collaborative view because it may just simply be people who know each other, who are working together, and, you know, they make tons of money. A fine needs to be um, strong enough, enough money to get someone's attention or they'll just pay the fine rather than change their behavior. So I'm hoping we're not going there. But if there was an incentive for firms to self-report and to stop the behavior they were doing and act more in the consumer's best interest, this might, at the end of the day, work out all right for consumers. We'll just kind of have to wait and see. They had stopped the enforcement altogether, which I thought was incredibly depressing. But now that they've started enforcing it, but more as a collaborative effort, I think it is a step in the right direction. We'll have to see what happens. We'll have to see whether or not Um, The consumers are really being protected by this agency. Time will tell. I'll let you know what I see as I'm reading things, and we'll just go from there. The other issue is a little bit more of a discussion on what has happened since the Department of Labor fiduciary rule has gone away and how it's impacting specifically the advice that is given to actual um, qualified retirement plans, things like 401ks, 401as, 403bs. 
If you think of it, if you work for a large company, if you think of it as your company retirement plan, that's a pretty easy shortcut to understanding what a qualified retirement plan is. And remember, the fiduciary rule for the IRA rollovers has gone away. But again, maybe just a smidge of good news this week. They're saying that they are going to more sharply enforce who can actually advise plan assets. So that I actually really wasn't even aware that financial advisors who weren't holding out the fiduciary standard were giving people advice on their 401k. And I'm assuming getting paid for that. But what they're saying now is that the people who are actually providing advice to the plans, they're going to take a closer look at whether or not they're acting as fiduciaries, that fiduciary standard for anyone who is giving advice to a plan, whether that's a private financial advisor or someone associated with the plan, is acting in the best interest. Now, it completely cuts off the minute it becomes an IRA rollover. So that fiduciary level of protection only exists inside the plan, but I was glad to see that they're going to keep that in place Hopefully, then, the clients can understand that when they roll it out, they need to seek out people with that same level of of care. That once you've actually rolled your 401k plan to an IRA, the first question you ask your new financial advisor is, are you willing to be a fiduciary and put it in writing? Because investment advisors have to be fiduciaries by law, and there's nothing actually prohibiting people who follow a brokerage model from holding a fiduciary standard. It is complicated. A lot of the firms don't want them doing it. That doesn't stop you as the consumer from demanding it before you'll do business with them. And I really think at the end of the day, that will be the easiest way to change the hearts and minds of the financial services industry. Because if they can't get people to work with them, unless they're holding a fiduciary standard, then it's much more likely they'll be interested in doing so. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome to the Plan Your Prosperity segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And I want to start this with a true story. Maybe 10 years ago, I got a phone call from a woman who had been to a seminar the night before. And the guy who was holding the seminar at a restaurant, so, you know, imagine the cold plate of fettuccine or the cold plate of spaghetti and the investment information being given out, told the people in the audience that if they didn't have $1 million saved in the bank, that they would be eating cat food during retirement. I swear that's a direct quote. He told them if they didn't have a $1 million in the bank, they would be eating cat food. Of course, that was unless they bought the product that he had that was magically going to solve all of this. So the woman called me up and she was completely freaked out. And she said, oh my God, am I going to be eating cat food during my retirement? And I said, you know, probably not. But the way you know how your finances are for retirement is to calculate your need, figure out how much you've saved, and then figure out what any kind of difference is. So on this episode of the show, I want to give you some tools to put in place so that you know whether or not you're on track to be okay during retirement. 
And I am going to tell you right off the bat that to do these calculations, you've got to have a cash flow calculator because everything we're going to talk about compounds. So that can get really difficult. There are calculators online. If you ever use an online financial calculator, you've got to dig under the hood and make sure what the assumptions are. And I'm going to tell you what all of those are in this section so that if you're using something like that, you can make sure that the assumptions that you're making are the same thing that the calculator is making. Or you might want to contact a certified financial planner practitioner. Let them help you do this. It's a pretty straightforward model, actually. You understand it once you see it. You just have to know what all the moving parts are. And like so much of financial planning, you need to start with your cash flow. How much money are you spending today? Honestly, I'm not a big fan of saying, oh, well, you're going to use 80% of today's spending. There's lots of rules of thumb that people will throw out there at you as to how to figure out how much you're going to spend. I think that's super risky. I think you really need to calculate it out a little bit more closely than that because if you're wrong on any of these and you're really wrong, it'll, whole, it'll throw the whole plan off track. So how much do you spend today? Now, look at those expenses. If you've got a mortgage, is it going to be paid off by the time you retire? And if it is, are you going to stay in that home? Are you maybe going to downsize? Or do you want a vacation home? Because if you downsize, you save money. If you want a vacation home, now you've spent more than you're spending today. You may have some costs that taper off, but remember, you'll have possible health care costs, especially if you retire prior to 65 when you're eligible for Medicare. Have you saved anything for long-term care or do you have a policy? Because if you haven't done any of that, then you're going to need to have a little bit of money set back for that as well. So try to come up with what the number per month is and then you'd multiply that number times 12 and then you'd inflate it at whatever inflation rate you choose for the number of years until you're ready to retire. So let's say you're 10 years from retirement and we assume inflation runs 3%. So you'd put that in and then that will give you the value of how much you need on day one of retirement per year. Then from that, you subtract off any pension benefits you're getting. Maybe you've got a pension through your work. Maybe you've got social security. All of that comes off And probably you still have a little bit of a deficit. Maybe you don't. If you don't have a deficit, you're in great shape. But if you have a deficit, then you need to figure out how much money it will take for however long you are in retirement to meet that deficit need. So the first assumption you have to make is when you're retiring. The second assumption is inflation. The third assumption is how long you're going to live. You know, with medical technology the way it is, people are often living quite a long time. The next assumption is how much will that money grow during retirement? Because it'll probably be invested. What kind of rate of return do you want to use as an assumption for that growth rate? Probably, again, you want to talk to your certified financial planner practitioner about that. Remember that that growth will be offset by inflation. So in retirement, your money only grows by an inflation-adjusted amount. But if you need 
$110 in a year, and you can make 10% rate of return, you only need $100 today to meet the need. You have the $100 that makes 10% at the end of the year, you have the $110 need. Your retirement need does exactly the same thing. So the money you need today for a need you have 30 years from now is sharply discounted because it's got a lot of time to grow. That's why you've got to use a financial calculator. There is a way to do this math longhand and you never, ever, ever want to do it. So calculate how much you need then as a lump sum on day one of retirement to meet your deficit and then figure out in the time you have left how much you need to save every year. And again, you'll want to decide on a rate of return. Maybe it's a little higher than the rate of return in retirement, but that's a really personal decision that you have to make. So today's money inflated forward, subtract off any benefits you're getting so you have the need, figure out what that is as a lump sum for your entire retirement period, and then save that amount in the period of time. If it's not possible, you can work longer or spend less, and those are the two easiest ways to begin to control it if the number you're left with isn't a number you really want to try to meet. But in any case, knowing the number will stop you from being afraid. That was all this guy was trying to do with my friend, was make her afraid cat food should never be discussed. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to my favorite part of the show, which is the Ask Peggy part. And you can go to my Facebook page that is Ask Peggy and send a question If it's an easy question, I can answer it on the air. If it's a little more complicated, I might private message you back and get a little more information just to make sure that what I'm saying is sensible. Now, remember, all I'm ever providing on this show is education and not investment advice. Even though I'm asking you what questions you have and I'm trying to help you with it, you still always need to talk to your own certified financial planner practitioner, your own financial professional, because you could have a component of your financial life that I don't know about. And so even with these questions, it is always important to run them by somebody else before you take my advice. So the question today really tied to the last section that I just did on eating cat food in retirement. I get these questions a lot. They're very, very common. This question for this week that um, said that someone had gone to a seminar and that they were told they couldn't count on Social Security and that even their pension might be at risk. And they were completely freaking out about this and they didn't know what to do. So I want to talk a little bit about the viability of Social Security and your pension benefits, help you understand it. Again, like my poor friend in the last section who was told she was going to have to eat cat food, this person was, again, in a group setting and was told, oh, you can't count on your Social Security and you can't count on your pension benefits. But amazingly enough, the person who was giving the seminar had the perfect solution for them so that everything would be okay. So the first thing I want to give you is some general advice. When someone says something 
well, about anything, but I'm really only qualified to talk about money. So if they say anything that scares you about your money, what is their agenda? Why are they saying it? Now, you know, if your kids come to you and say, hey, we're really worried about you and we want to make sure that everything's all right, your kids probably have your best interest at heart. You know, a really good friend might contact you and, or call you up and say, hey, I'm really kind of worried about this for you. Have you thought about it? You know, your friend is probably acting in your interest. Now, sometimes they're not. Sometimes the kids aren't. That's when, that's when fraud gets really, really crazy bad because this is from people we trust. But if somebody's bought you a free meal and it's not a very good meal and then they got a whole bunch of PowerPoint slides and they're going through them and they're trying to scare you into buying something, first of all, you need to take that into a giant grain of salt. Why are they scaring you? Why are they making you feel bad? What do they have to gain by your being afraid? So always consider that before you freak out. Now, that being said, pension plans do sometimes blow up because the company will get itself into a bad financial situation and the pension suddenly really isn't viable anymore. Two things usually happen with that. First of all, if a company sees that they're getting in trouble, remember most companies are not trying to just shred the personal lives of their employees. So if they see that their, their ability to pay their pension benefit isn't great, they'll usually convert, convert a pension plan to a defined contribution plan where they'll give all the employees who are participating in the pension a lump sum of money that then has to be invested in something like a 401k. They do that because they no longer have to take responsibility for the market performance of the money. And it throws the performance of the money over onto the clients, onto the employees. So basically, they can stop the bleeding at that point. They don't have to worry about a bad market condition. And now it's up to the employee to make sure that the money invests properly. If that doesn't happen, it blows up even further. Every pension plan that has as few as one employee other than the owner has to buy into the Pension Benefit Guarantee Company, PBGC, and buy insurance for their pension plan. And with PBGC, you have the ability then to get a pension benefit that could be as high as $60,000. Now, obviously, if that wasn't going to be your pension, it's not going to be your pension this time either, but you will be able to um, have at least some benefit from it. They don't typically just go away poof because PBGC provides coverage and more likely they roll your defined benefit to a defined contribution. Social Security's in trouble. There are easy solutions to add more money to the Social Security system. The easiest way is to get um, into or to do away with the wage base, which right now is $128,700. If you did that, every dollar a person earned would be subject to Social Security. That's the easy fix. I think they'll do it before they let Social Security totally go away because senior citizens vote and everybody in Washington wants their job back. I can't imagine that they would actually let it go away and not 
provide some kind of fix. It would be suicidal for everyone in Congress. So if all the money that people earned was subject to the Social Security tax and not just the first $128,000 people earned, that would solve the problem. It would be really easy. There'd be enough money. Privatizing is risky because people make really bad investment decisions, especially at the time they should make it the least. So I am not a fan of privatizing Social Security. I don't want people to be able to lose it all and then have absolutely nothing left. So that's the end of the show. I want to remind you that my book, 52 Weeks to Prosperity, Ask Peggy Doviak, comes out on August 7th, and it's available on any sort of an online retail. If you're interested in more information about me, then you can go to PeggyDoviak.com, and please submit a question to the Ask Peggy Facebook page. I really appreciate you guys listening, and I'll see you next week. Bye. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.